This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Over the course of history of doing this show, I, I would note that we are oftentimes nervous before elections. And I got to tell you that before this upcoming midterm election, which will take place next week, we're not just nervous, we are damn near terrified at the prospects of what might unfold. If you're a regular listener to this program, and we hope that you are, you would know why it is we, we have this great fear of what may happen. Between the electoral results and what the Supreme Court of the United States may cook up in their current session, there, there's plenty of cause for concern. We were hoping to address the latter, that issue of the Supreme Court's uh, uh, actions or possible actions with Michael Trackman, whose wonderful book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, uh, we talked with him about many years ago. He has some subsequent editions of the book. And... Um, will indeed talk to us. He's agreed to do so. He just couldn't quite pull it together this week. I'm confident that if we still have a republic in the United States uh, uh, next month, uh, we'll talk to him then. And I looked at one of our go-to websites this morning to take a look at what the prospects were, what the, the current polling is showing, and uh, it appears that the Republicans are poised to retake control of the House. This is due, at least in part, to the fact that there was some pretty serious gerrymandering that went on. And, and that came on the heels of, of some funny business with the census, a uh, real effort to, to minimize some numbers that might otherwise uh, shape our congressional districts. And as a consequence, the Republicans seemed set to pick up 10 seats just sitting there. Things are not looking so good in the Senate either. And I, I hate to sound so partisan here that I'm, I'm anti-Republican. Um, I didn't used to be anti-Republican. There was a time when I was a registered Republican. Now, I admit, I did that just so I could vote against George W. Bush. Nevertheless, for a while, I was a Republican. Well, on paper, you know, the, the same way that Elvis was a black belt. As some comic I can't remember uh, so memorably put it. But uh, as we've chronicled on this program over the past many years, the ever-growing gap between uh, reality and Republican Party thinking uh, seems to just get wider and wider. Despite no credible evidence for the theft of the 2020 election, uh, half the people running, it seems, for Republican offices in this country endorse this lie, this, this out-and-out lie about election theft. We should refer you also to the Common Dreams website, there's a piece in there uh, by Stephen J. Harper, which he credits uh, this program for inspire in him. He certainly talked openly with us about the fact that election deniers were election liars, and he then translated that into a, an essay that I can recommend to you very highly, Common Dreams. We look forward to having Mr. Harper on the program again post-election. But here, here's how wacky things have gotten. I was speaking yesterday with a friend of mine, someone who's been on this program in the past, who shall remain nameless. I have been puzzled to note that in recent years, he has become a devoted fan of Donald J. Trump and seems to believe everything Trump has to say. 
We started out discussing a mutual friend's birthday yesterday, but then we turned into the story of Paul Pelosi. He asked if I'd heard uh, the supposed backstory to the Paul Pelosi attack, which from his sources was that uh, Mr. Pelosi had picked up his assailant in a gay bar, and back at the house, things went south. There were allegations that the man was found in his underwear, and somehow this gay tryst gone bad turned into an attack with a hammer. I asked him where he got this information, and he was sort of vague on it. And I assumed it was the usual MAGA hat crowd, you know, disinformation factory. So I started looking into it, and sure enough, my friend Martin Shackelford uh, summarized it very well in a post he placed onto Facebook, which was, and I'll, I'll quote from Martin, Right-wing disinformation specialist Dinesh D'Souza has been trying to shop a story saying that Paul Pelosi and his attacker were both in their underwear when police arrived, implying a sexual element to the incident, a gay lover's sex quarrel. Two Republican candidates have repeated this garbage. D'Souza's latest film is the election denier hoax, 2,000 Mules. Ted Cruz said the attacker was a hippie nudist from Berkeley, not a right-winger, despite the man's extensive social media history of anti-vax, election denial, and other conspiracy theorist materials. Elon Musk tweeted a story that Paul Pelosi met his attacker in a bar, part of the sex quarrel nonsense. Musk quickly deleted the tweet after it had been retweeted multiple times. (coughs) Trump said, there's a tiny possibility there's more to this story than meets the eye. His tweet then got retweeted by a notorious Pizzagate promoter. Donald Trump Jr., bless his heart, posted a photo of underwear and a hammer, calling it my Paul Pelosi Halloween costume, to which I just have to insert, you know, the whole Trump family, just a real class act, no matter how you look at it. (laughs) Said Martin, some Republicans use the incident to promote the theme of rampant crime in, quote, Democrat cities, unquote. Pelosi's assailant, on the other hand, told San Francisco police he wanted to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and, quote, break her kneecaps, unquote. Mr. Miller points out, of course, that's just typical liberal Democrat sentiments. Yeah, keep in mind that when Elon Musk uh, tweets this, he now owns the company. He's described himself as a free speech absolutist and apparently wants to to loosen up any restrictions that might be there on, um, well, people just expressing their opinions even if they're wacko, right-wing, insane, non-fact-based opinions. Congresswoman Jackie Spear, represents most of San Mateo County and parts of San Francisco, said, your town square is going to become the town garbage dump if you don't recant this reprehensible, untrue post. State Senator Scott Weiner said it only took 72 hours for Elon Musk as Twitter's CEO to start posting conspiracy theories. I wonder how long it'll take him to reactivate Kanye, Trump, and other toxic accounts. As you know, if you listen to this program, we have been fearful for many years about the growing power and and, and misuse of that power by big tech. It looks as though some people at the New York Times agree with us. Article by Cade Mintz, Adam Santoriano, and Chang Che under the headline, How Elon Musk Became a Geopolitical Chaos Agent is worth talking about. Its subheadline was, Billionaires' Messages Spark Controversy in Hotspots Around the World. Notes the piece. In the past four weeks, Elon Musk has offered a peace plan for Russia and Ukraine that outraged Ukrainians. He posted a tweet about Iranian internet access that exposed government protesters to a phishing scheme. 
and he suggested in a newspaper that China could be appeased if it were given partial control of Taiwan. Said the Times, Musk has in recent months emerged as a new chaotic actor on the stage of global politics. While the bulk of his wealth comes from his stake in his electric car company Tesla, his influence stems largely from his rocket company SpaceX, which runs the Starlink satellite network. Starlink can beam internet service to conflict zones and geopolitical hotspots and has become an essential tool of the Ukrainian army. Said the Times, Musk influence will grow even further if his planned purchase of Twitter is finalized Friday. Well, that was, that was last week. It's, it's, it's been finalized. He's called himself a free speech absolutist and is expected to take a light touch to moderating Twitter's content. Yeah, we, we've seen that in action already. Article quotes Karen Kornblue, director of the German Marshall Fund, which is a geopolitical think tank. She was also a former advisor to President Barack Obama, is saying technology has become central to geopolitics. It is fascinating and it is messy. And there is Elon Musk in the middle of it. Paper notes that in some cases, Musk has been a boon. When he provided Starlink internet access in Ukraine earlier in the year, he funded at least part of the hardware and service. He equipped both civilians and soldiers with a crucial means of communication during the ongoing conflict with Russia. You got to think about this just for a minute. The Ukrainian army and civilians in Ukraine are, are relying on Elon Musk to maintain communications if the internet is brought down. Now, over in Iran, Musk appeared to come to the rescue when authorities there started blocking internet access to tamp down some of the widespread protests going on in that country. Apparently, after the U.S. government lifted some sanctions that limit the ability of American tech companies to operate in Iran, Musk tweeted that he was activating Starlink. It's true that Starlink offered the potential to bypass the government's blockade of land-based internet connections that had taken Iranians in many cities offline. But as the Iranian populace soon learned, Musk's promise did not hold up. Left unsaid by Musk was any context on what was needed to get Starlink up and running, how long it would take, and why Iranian government restrictions would make it impossible to offer the service widely. While Starlink remained unavailable in Iran, hackers believed to have links to the government began a phishing campaign, sending messages inside social media channels with links claiming to provide access to Starlink. That's according to Amir Rashidi, a digital rights expert from Iran. Rather than, rather than providing access to Musk's satellite system, links were malware that gobbled up information from the user's phones, said Rashidi, who analyzed at least five versions of the malware. Anyway, that's Iran. What about America? Another article in, on the Common Dreams website by a Kenny Stancil under the headline, Big Tech Failing to Fight Hate and Lies Ahead of U.S. Midterms, Report Warns. We have this. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube are failing to curb the spread of right-wing extremism and disinformation on their platforms and must immediately implement safeguards with the pivotal U.S. midterm elections a week away. The watchdog group Free Press analyzed the policies of the four social media giants to measure how prepared each one is to combat Trump-backed efforts to sow doubt about upcoming electoral outcomes. According to Free Press, the problem is just as dire in advance of the 2022 U.S. midterms as it was during the 2020 election. In particular, the report found that the major social media networks have one failed to cleanly <coughs> have one failed to clearly update their election integrity systems in time. Two 
created a labyrinth of company commitments, announcements. Two, created a labyrinth of company commitments, announcements, and policies that make it difficult to assess what they're really doing, if anything, to protect users. And three, fail to disclose what they call newsworthiness or public interest exceptions that give prominent users and politicians a get-out-of-jail-free card and allow them to post lies without consequences from the platforms. To quote from the report, Although tech companies have promised to fight disinformation and hate on their platforms this fall, there is a notable gap between what the companies say they want to do and what they actually do in practice. In some, platforms do not have sufficient policies, practices, AI, or human capital in place to materially mitigate harm ahead of and during the November midterms. Well, that's reassuring, isn't it? Another article in Common Dreams that was published just before the Brazilian election results were in was talking about how Meta and TikTok were pushing Stop the Steal reports down in Brazil. We'll have to see where this goes. As you no doubt know by now, dear listener, it appears that Bolsonaro has lost. The election results I saw showed um, Lula da Silva with 50.8% of the vote and Bolsonaro with 49.1%. The less than 2% difference certainly does not reflect what the polling data suggested, which, as I recall, had Lula da Silva up by several percentage points. But then again, who knows with the polling? It was considered a dead heat by many possibly due to the fact that the federal police apparently were out, were out all over Brazil stopping busloads of people intent upon voting. Could it be that Bolsonaro managed to, um, to shave several percentage points off the difference, but it just wasn't quite enough? All we're going to say is, well, I, I, I think that's possible, yeah. We do want to note, by the way, that one of the reasons the tech companies may be a little bit wary about stopping you know, out-and-out lies on their platforms is the fact that... Uh, They're getting sued for supposed censorship. The Republican National Committee is currently suing Google over its email spam filters. In a lawsuit filed in the District Court of the Eastern District of California last week, Gmail was accused of discriminating against the RNC by unfairly sending the group's emails to users' spam folders, impacting both fundraising and get-out-the-vote efforts in pivotal swing states. As you no doubt know, Republicans who have tried to cast doubt on the outcome of the 2020 elections without parroting the most extreme and baseless claims about corrupted voting machines and stolen votes have often tried to blame big technology companies like Twitter and Facebook that they allege were biased against former President Donald Trump. And of course, a long list of state and local election officials, courts, and members of Trump's own administration have said there's no evidence of the mass fraud which Trump alleges. Anyway, one nice aspect out of all of this is that we can all vote in this election. That, that might do some good. we got to talk a little bit about the election itself. Remember when Biden said he was going to get tough with the Saudis, but was going to do what he could to you know, forge a good relationship? Well, it didn't appear that he was all that hard on Mohammed bin Salman, you know, he who likes to you know, murder dissidents. And when necessary, have them cut up in your various foreign embassies and taken out in pieces. But apparently the Saudis still did not warm up to the president in his suggestion we, we could get together and, you know, do things for our mutual benefit. For our benefit, increasing uh, oil production would have helped gas prices in America, given the fall of 
supplies coming out of Russia. But wouldn't you know it, Mohammed bin Salman has apparently double-crossed Joe Biden. As it turns out, the Riyadh-led OPEC Plus alliance, the plus in that apparently is Russia, moves to cut oil production and, and raise prices. This is not coincidentally associated with the upcoming midterm elections. If you talk to a certain subset of Americans, you'll find out that the main issue in their world is not the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world and certainly not global warming. No, it's gas prices. And why are gas prices up? Well, last week a... uh, A Trump fan I was talking to said, well, clearly it has to do with the fact that Biden is allied with the greenies. And apparently the greenies, meaning environmentalists, are the people that are working tirelessly to raise gas prices, even though right at the moment that is counterproductive to their interests. It's the same group of people that believes that the major media corporations in America are working tirelessly to thwart their own selfish interests. And we just have to make some mention of the fact that, you know, there was a time during the Cold War when, uh, well, there was a Mike Lukovich cartoon that summarized it perfectly. It said, Old Cold War, and it showed a donkey and an elephant sitting on one side of the table and the Russian bear on the other. The next panel was New Cold War, showed the Democrats sitting on one side of the table and the elephant sitting with the Russian bear on the other side. I think that's certainly an example of a picture being worth a thousand words. About a month or so ago, this correspondent returned from a a few days over in the Hawaiian Islands and was surprised to learn when he got back that gas prices had taken a jump of like a dollar in one week. My immediate assumption was that this was being done to affect politics in California, where gas currently runs about $2 more than it does in the rest of the United States. Now, perhaps not coincidentally, Gavin Newsom has um, made some noise about the fact that we're going to uh, have to go after oil companies and maybe take a little of their money away from them to do other things with it. Although I'm a little vague on what what he has proposed. The San Francisco Chronicle notes that uh, gas prices climbed since August when legislators and Gavin Newsom then agreed to a package of sweeping climate bills to reduce emissions from fossil fuels. Environmentalists now say that the industry's flood of spending in legislative races is retaliation and an attempt to buy support from lawmakers who will decide the fate of Newsom's proposals. Ted Gardner notes that oil company executives have been tight-lipped about their campaign strategy, though they say California's regulations and environmental policies have been a factor in driving up prices along, of course, with broader trends, such as global instability in the oil market due to the war in Ukraine. Down in the San Diego area, there's a race going on between Democratic Encinitas Mayor Catherine Blakespear and Republican businessman Mark Gunderson. That has attracted the most spending from big oil, nearly $1.8 million so far. Most of the money has gone to attack ads against Blakespear, with the rest supporting Gunderson, according to campaign finance disclosures. The oil companies have poured the money in an independent effort separate from the official campaigns of Blakespear and Gunderson, who have raised $3.9 and $2.4 million, respectively. Blakespear said she suspects she's a target for the oil companies because she's been a vocal critic of their contributions to climate change and the 2021 Orange County oil spill. 
She's called for the Attorney General to investigate the companies for manipulating the market to drive gas prices up. She said, we just don't have a sufficient explanation for the spike in prices we've seen here in California. For his part, Gavin Newsom has given a few details about his plan, but he said the revenue would go back to consumers in the form of a rebate. The piece notes that Sacramento City Council member Eric Guerra says he thinks the governor's timing is smart. Guerra is running to replace Assemblymember Jim Cooper of Elk Grove. He says he keeps hearing from constituents who ask him to do something to lower gas prices. Oil companies have spent more than $900,000 to boost his opponent. Fellow Democrat Stephanie Nguyen, an Elk Grove City Council member, which is more than she's raised for her official campaign. Oil companies have spent $1.6 million to boost the campaign of Democratic Sacramento City Council member Angelique Ashby in her race against former insurance commissioner Dave Jones. The two Democrats are running to replace termed-out Senator Richard Pan. The oil company's spending represents more than either Ashby or Jones has raised for their official campaigns. On Twitter, Ashby sought to distance herself from the oil company's spending to support her. I denounce support from big oil, she tweeted earlier this month, noting that the big oil companies are not giving to her campaign, but rather to an independent effort to support her that she doesn't control. Oh, well, then I guess it's okay. Said Ashby, I look forward to working with the governor on his proposal to stop windfall profits by oil companies and out-of-control gas prices. I guess to which she did not add, but in the meantime, thanks for the bucks, fellas. Her opponent, Dave Jones, says he does want to crack down on oil companies for their high prices, but doesn't yet have a position on Newsom's proposal. Said Jones, I don't think there's been a concrete proposal, but I do agree with the oil companies are price gouging. I think that the oil companies are spending millions against me because they know I will oppose them and will fight them and will stand up for people and the climate. Jones provoked ire from attorneys general in oil producing states back in 2017 when he called for companies to divest from the industry and encourage reporting of fossil fuel investments. He has been blasting Ashby for being supported by oil companies and campaign mailers filling Sacramento mailboxes. Most of the oil industry spending in legislative races has come through a political committee with the name Coalition to Restore California's Middle Class, including energy companies who produce gas, oil, jobs, and pay taxes. A spokesperson for the group did not respond to requests for comment. The Western States Petroleum Association, an industry group supporting the committee, also declined to comment. So, yeah, a lot of people are worried about high gas prices. It's the main thing in their lives, apparently, and this may cause them to be angry and, and vote against uh, Democrats, which, let's face it, isn't that the whole idea? Although, in the case of, you know, Angelique Ashby and Dave Jones, they're both Democrats. Just some are a little less hard on the oil companies, apparently, and, and they like that. You know, it seems to me we did have Dave Jones on the show many years ago, Mr. McMillan, and he seemed like a pretty decent fellow. He did to me. Some say that so goes California, so goes the nation. That's sometimes been true. And there's currently a big fight going on about what California did in 2012 about uh, instituting standards for raising animals that was more humane. Actually, I'm sorry, it was Proposition 12 and it was 2018. We in California approved the proposition the Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act, which bans the most extreme confinement of mother pigs, calves raised for veal, and egg-laying hens. 
In an editorial about how this case is now before the Supreme Court, Lawrence Tribe, who is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor Emeritus at Harvard Law School, said, On industrial pig farms in the United States, mother pigs are confined for their entire lives in barren cages, barely larger than their bodies. In these, quote, gestation crates, unquote, these intelligent animals are tortured. They cannot turn around or even fully lie down, causing them to develop painful sores and cramped muscles. Their piglets are born in a densely packed environment ripe for disease and infection. So when we set a standard for products sold in the California market, a standard to which all in-state and out-of-state producers must adhere, California acted in the best tradition as laboratories of democracy, notes Lawrence Tribe. He also notes the pork industry challenged the California law, claiming it violates the Constitution's Commerce Clause because it improperly regulates interstate commerce. The Federal District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected this argument, but wouldn't you know it, the Supreme Court took the case. National Pork Producers Council versus Ross and heard oral arguments last week. Tribe notes that under long-standing legal principles, states are free to adopt reasonable rules to regulate what may be sold to people in those states, including how the goods are produced. As long as the regulations don't discriminate against out-of-state products or irrationally burdened interstate commerce. If the Supreme Court adopts the position advocated by the pork producers, the number and variety of state laws that might end up on the chopping block would be hard to estimate. Said Tribe, if California loses the case, it could set up a formula for making a federal case out of virtually every state regulation that fails to exempt out-of-state producers, including regulations on pollution, global climate, and the exploitation of children. Of course, the Supreme Court hasn't acted yes in a crazy fashion, and we are keen to hear what uh, Michael Trackman has to say about this case, in addition to so many others before the court. And here's an interesting development in the Republican world of alternative facts. Writing in Slate magazine, Daniel Moynihan points out that the proof appears to be in, and the Republicans have indeed been more likely to die because of COVID than Democrats. A new study at Yale examined excess deaths in Ohio and Florida before and during the pandemic. These are deaths that exceeded demographic and historical trends for the area. They then matched 577,000 of the deceased to their party registrations. Correcting for age, the researchers found that in 2020 and in 2021, the excess deaths among Republicans were... Well, what do, you, what do you guess? What do you guess the number may be? How much higher would Republican deaths be than Democrats? 10%? 15%? 25%. Well, actually, the number turns out to be 76%. Tellingly, notes Moynihan, the big gap opened up only after vaccines became widely available. That's because right-wing politicians and media chose to cast doubt on their safety and efficacy and they disdained other mitigation measures such as social distancing and masking. Once Joe Biden became president, that was in January of 2021, Republicans amplified the claims that vaccines posed a threat to freedom and aligned themselves with anti-vaccine activists. Fox News and GOP politicians began mainstreaming conspiracy theories about vaccines and fringe nonsense about alternative treatments. This deadly disinformation gave those cynics votes and ratings, but cost 
tens of thousands of Republicans their lives. Yet I think it's pretty clear in talking to people that uh, the reality of this has just not sunken in a certain subset of the population who may or may not be wearing their MAGA hats. One of the current lines of disinformation out there is that these, these numbers, the, these number of deaths attributed to COVID, are just way out of line. One guy I know, not a doctor, tried to argue that, you know, what's, what are the true numbers once you extract all the comorbidities? My response was, well, you don't subtract the comorbidities because you're more likely to die because you have certain conditions that make you more vulnerable to a given pathogen. Doesn't mean that if that pathogen shows up and kills you, your death is somehow suspect. At this point, we have to take a short break. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and I'm your host, Douglas Everett.